Well, good evening and welcome, my listeners, to Voices of the Sacred Feminine, broadcasting across the globe for it's either eight or nine years now. You know, I should actually look at a calendar and figure that out instead of continuing to say, gee, it's eight or nine years now. (laughs) Uh, But if you're a regular, you know that uh, what we do here is speak for those with no voice. We speak truth to power on a regular basis. And we share the news of the cognitive minority as we begin to manifest a new normal and a new awareness for the quality of life for the 99%. I wonder if you can see it changing. I wonder if you can feel it. Well, if I sound a little weird tonight, uh, you're not, uh, you know, you're, you don't have to scratch your head. It's not you. It is me. Um, I have uh, been suffering with a terrible head cold and sore throat all week, and uh, it's uh, kind of been a rough one. So tonight I am actually even flying without a script, but I guess I've done this long enough that I ought to be able to. And uh, getting back to uh, our purpose here, speaking truth to power, speaking for those with no voice, tonight uh, will be no exception because uh, February 6th marked um, the International Day of Zero Tolerance to Female Genital Mutilation. And uh, we have with us Nina Smart, uh, who is going to discuss with us this barbaric practice suffered by way too many young girls and women across the globe. Uh, If you haven't heard about this, well, you need to know about it. And uh, I believe uh, Nina will probably tell us this is not something that's just happening in third world countries anymore. Uh, Then, uh, later, as we cross the threshold into the second half of the show, uh, we are in the season of Mardi Gras. In fact, uh, my hometown of New Orleans celebrated Mardi Gras on Tuesday of this week. So I'm going to share a little bit about that uh, with you because, you know, when I lived in New Orleans, uh, my entire adult life, I didn't know about the goddess roots of uh, Mardi Gras. I didn't know about the pagan roots of Mardi Gras. And, um, you know, I'm a little bit ashamed of that, to tell you the truth. Uh, So anyway, I'm going to tell you about all the parades that are named for goddesses, and um, I'm going to read a bit uh, from my Sacred Places of Goddess 108 Destinations book, because um, I named New Orleans as a sacred place of goddess. And, um, you know, the Mardi Gras celebrations is just one of the reasons why. So uh, I think you might uh, find that all very interesting. But uh, before, um, you know, uh, we go any further into any of that, uh, I am going to say hello to Nina and introduce you to her uh, by way of her uh, very interesting and colorful Uh, bio. Um, Nina is a PhD. Uh, She's a human rights activist. She's an artist, an author, an entrepreneur. Uh, She um, has written the book Wildflower. But uh, let me read to you uh, her background. Um, I don't usually read these long bios. I usually just excerpt important things out of them. But um, this bio deserves 
uh, being read uh, in, you know, in, in almost its entirety. And I think it gives you a flavor of our guest tonight and why she is so suited uh, to be talking about this subject of uh, FGM, as it's called, female genital mutilation. Uh, Nina Smart uh, was born and raised in a loving, close-knit family in communist Romania, which is in Eastern Europe. A happy, outgoing child, she was not aware of her biracial origins in her early childhood. At the age of 11, she learned for the first time that the man she believed to be her father was not actually her biological parent. In response to this revelation, Nina's biological father, a wealthy diplomat from Sierra Leone, West Africa, who just found out himself that he had fathered a daughter during his university days, began international adoption procedures together with his African wife. At the age of 13, after complicated legal maneuvers, Nina left Romania with her African father, who promised her Romanian family that he would send her to a top school in England to continue her education. Once in Africa, however, Nina's father insisted that she attend boarding school in Lagos, Nigeria. Without any knowledge of the local culture and speaking only Romanian, Nina experienced segregation for the first time in Queens College, a school for girls only. Forbidden to communicate with her Romanian family, it was in this boarding school that Nina began her social activism. Gradually adjusting to the language, the culture shock, and the extreme trauma of enforced separation from her family of origin, Nina rose to the top of her class. After five years of study, she was awarded a scholarship to medical school in Romania. Though outwardly agreeing to allow her to attend, her father arranged instead for Nina to be abducted and inducted into Bondo, the secret society for women that is a proud and ancient tradition in Sierra Leone. The initiation rite for the Bondo is FGM, female genital mutilation. In her memoir uh, called Wildflower, Nina shares the riveting story of her coming of age in a West African culture that considers women to be the property of their fathers, then of their husbands. She also recounts her death, life and death struggle to preserve her sanity, autonomy, and anatomy in the face of her powerful father's indomitable will and widespread social influence. In 2004, Nina founded Servicing Wildflowers, SWF International, a Los Angeles-based nonprofit NGO that raises awareness about FGM through lectures and presentations for students and the socially conscious. Nina, wow, what a story. Thank you so much, Karen, for having me here and giving me the opportunity to share, continue to share awareness about uh, FGM to your audience around the globe. I'm very happy to be on your station. Thank you. Well, thank you for being here. You know, we've we talked about female genital mutilation before, but I mean, my show's been on the air a while, and I don't think we've talked about it in quite a while. And uh, when I met you, uh, I realized that, and I thought, you know, this is something we really should be talking about regularly. 
um, because I don't think a lot of Westerners know a lot about this. And um, I can tell from when, and, and you'll have to speak to this too, uh, but you know, when I go out and talk about the oppression of women and I bring up FGM, women don't know about it. Or maybe they've heard, oh, this is just something minor. You know, Maybe it's similar to male circumcision. But that's not the case at all, right? No, it's not the case. And in fact, when people ask me what is it that I do, I often answer that I tell people that FGM continues and it's alive and it's happening right now. And it's very unfortunate that most of us who think that we are uh, very involved in social justice around the globe, we most of us don't even know that it's the degree to which this happens in so many places around the world and not only faraway places, but also in our background when you have immigrants that have become our neighbors and they continue to practice this in the name of tradition and in the name of culture. So it is a very sensitive topic. It is difficult to discuss it. In fact, um, the, the term itself, FGM, has been contested because it offends people because they feel that the, uh, the mutilation is a little bit too harsh. However, I continue to use the term, which is the same used by the UN. You mentioned the zero uh, day to tolerance for the international zero date of tolerance to FGM that was observed for the 12th year by the United Nations on the 6th of February. And um, it's important to understand that this is not just some tradition, that it, do- it is a form of torture, and it is hurting women and young girls against their wishes. So yeah. there are many views on this, and I will very much uh, like to share some of the general information on FGM. But... Uh, I I want to stress the fact that I stick to the term of female genital mutilation and not change it to circumcision or FGC, which is female genital cutting, based on the extensive research which I conducted in the small country of Sierra Leone, where about 98% of the women are forced to undergo the practice. Yeah. And uh, we can elaborate on that as we continue our Yeah, you know, um, I, uh, I I don't know whether you heard um, uh, former President Jimmy Carter actually talk about female genital mutilation on um, the David Letterman show, but I was jumping up and down and screaming with uh, just relief and, and awe and pride that he had the courage because, you know, he got into the nitty-gritty, you know, and you could tell that even um, David Letterman was a little shocked. You know, he he didn't pull any punches. He didn't, he wasn't, he didn't care, I think, if he made people's jaws drop with the description because people's jaws should drop because this is, mutilation and I, I I just wish that um, that pictures of this mutilation would be plastered all over the internet and I know that might be offensive to some um, but 
I, I, and it, maybe they do exist. I don't know. But I think if people actually saw what happens to these young girls, you know, I mean, their clitoris is cut out sometimes with a, a sharp shell, for heaven's sakes. You know, um, the brutality of that, it would be bad enough if it was done by a doctor with a scalpel. But, you know, this is often done in these horrendous conditions like I've just described. And then there's then the women, you know, the young girls are sewed up, you know, only to be, um, you know, brutally split open again when they, um, you know, when when on their wedding night. I mean, this is incredibly barbaric, and and for anyone to say it's not mutilation, I think they're out of their mind. That has been a topic of uh, great interest to a lot of people who debate on the issue, and the approach that I have taken, I think you noticed from uh, the very elaborate introduction that you gave, is uh, I decided to create to to have an organization that deals with the issue of FGM and finds solutions to this problem instead of spending most of the time debating on the terminology or on the cultural relativity of the practice, given the information that we have and some of the statistics that actually do ref reflect the, the suffering that most women who have undergone the practice unfortunately had to deal with. Uh, FGM, it truly denies the physical and mental integrity of women. And although in the country of Sierra Leone, where about 98% of the women practice that, it's so difficult to actually even open up the topic of, uh, of this traditional and cultural practice. It is something that even there, especially lately with the, unfortunately, the epidemic of Ebola, it, it, it has taken a different direction. And um, dealing with what some of the disasters that came from uh, the effects of Ebola, now we have had new opportunities to deal with FGM. But um, I would like to uh, give you a general well, idea wait, of but, how... But, but, wait a, but wait, Nina, let's go back. Um, talk about that a little bit. And, and I appreciate that you're solution-oriented here, you know, um, yes. you know that, that, that you want to, you know, talk about how to solve this. But, and, and, and of course we will, and that's what we're going to focus on. But, you know, I think it is also important to say that this is, this is a practice that is perpetuated um, by women, you know, in yes. in a lot of cases, you know, they want their daughters to be marriageable, and um, so, uh, so this, this is, is an, this is an example of women's inhumanity to women, of women being complicit in their own uh, oppression, and you know, we have to, I think, shed light on stuff like that, you know, uh, because people shouldn't think that you know, these these young girls that it's happening to them without their mother or their aunties. Uh, you know, or, or their, you know, their neighborhood's approval. Correct. And it appears that it is only the women who are involved in the continuation of the practice. However, the more you examine and you speak with families in the practicing communities, then you understand what the role of this practice of FGM really is, preparing girls for marriage and preparing girls to be uh, what they will consider a faithful wife, and um, indirectly, 
everyone is responsible and everyone is affected by FGM. Uh, and it is so central in the cultural um, aspect of a country like Sierra Leone, and it is the most unspoken about truth that everyone has to deal with. And it's very convenient for most men from the culture not to want to address the issue, which is one of the main approaches that we have taken from our organization and the partners that we work with on different various areas, especially the rural areas of Sierra Leone, is involving the men, the fathers, the brothers, and also the religious leaders. It's very difficult to get the politicians involved because FGM is so such an important uh, political tool in earning votes in Sierra Leone, if you can imagine that. But... Um, uh, well, well, let me, and, Dina, let, let me ask you, because I, I, I want to find out about how Ebola has impacted this, but, but let me ask you, I mean, we know Christianity is a religion that doesn't, you know, that would rather have women not be sexual. I mean, you know, all we have to do is look at Jesus' mother, Mary, and, you know, that's the image that they want uh, women to emulate this sexless woman, um, you know, someone, uh, you know, in, and, uh, you know, quite frankly, in our patriarchal culture, you know, it's, it, it's commonplace to not talk about women's suffering, whether it's, you know, women being relegated to the menstrual hut or it's infanticide or it's domestic violence or it's FGM, you know, the things that our culture heaps upon women, we just take it as normal, you know, and something that we shouldn't talk about. But does this, did, was this going on before Christianity? Um, and, and that's what I'm really curious about. Or was it with, you know, Christianity coming into Africa and, the, the, you know, their whole, you know, sexual taboos, is that when it started or was it there before? Well, unfortunately, FGM has been around for much longer than when Christianity arrived in different areas of Africa. Uh, we don't know the exact origin. It is believed that even the, some of the mummies, the female mummies from Egypt, when examined, it did show that they had the most severe form of FGM, which is the infibulation, where most of the female organs were removed and then sewn back together. And of course, there are different levels of FGM. I would like to address that briefly in a minute. But um, it spread, and it is believed that the way the map of FGM, I believe I have that on the website, um, has spread is with the movement of, it, it's influenced slightly by religion, but in the African cultures, the religion that uh, sees the, the, the value of FGM as lucrative for the family, unfortunately, it is Islam. So most Muslim families believe that it is their religious duty to have the girls fixed or cut or sometimes wrongly stated circumcised where some of the most severe forms of FGM happen. But in Sierra Leone, where 98% of the women have to undergo this as part of initiation into this secret society that we call the Bondo or the Sunday secret society, religion doesn't play a role. So it is whether they are Muslim or they are Christians or 
it's very important for the girl to to be fixed before right, she right. is ready for the society. So there is, they don't have enough sufficient studies to show whether one religion was, let's say, Christianity was very influential in the spread of uh, FGM in West Africa, for instance. But um, well, it, that's it, very it interesting, though, that that you said about the Egyptian mummy, and I think I'm going to pursue that through a different angle. Uh, and okay. try to find out more about that. You know, I had Kara Cooney on the show a few weeks ago, and she just wrote a book on Queen Hatshepsut. And I don't know mm. what made me ask her, but I, I asked her if she knew if FGM was going on in the days of Queen Hatshepsut. And she said, no, she didn't think so. But I think I'm going to follow up on that because I think this is really interesting. You know, was this around before these patriarchal religions of Christianity Christianity and Islam, you know. But anyway, so how how does Ebo- how did the Ebola crisis change things? How is it helping the FGM problem? I wouldn't say it's helping, but at this point, because of the um, the ABCs, which is avoid body contact, that continues to be um, to be pursued in Sierra Leone among communities to try to reduce the spread of Ebola, it has, um, it has stopped all the women who, around this time of the year, because it is the dry season in that part of uh, West Africa, they would have been practicing FGM. So as of right now, from the report I get from the activists that I speak with on a regular basis in different areas of Sierra Leone, it has given the opportunity to revisit and rethink why FGM continues to understand the economic factor that drives the the continuation of this practice and the meaning that it has in family life. Because as you know, the uh, female genital mutilation intentionally hurts and alters the genitals of women, and it's not for a medical reason. It is the belief of the family that this has to be done. So while everything has been put on stop, schools are not opened, there is limited um, community interaction because of the Ebola, there are some groups of women who have the opportunity to discuss and, and, and just be a little bit more bold on the issue of this FGM and and unveil it from its root to show the 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 actual uh, function that it plays in the family and to make them understand that their identity as women doesn't come from the fact that they are very brave when their clitoris is being cut and the fact that they can still continue to live and be wonderful wives and mothers after they've bled so much, but that it is just preparation for a life of servitude as they get married. And since Sierra Leone has just a few years ago adopted the legislation against child bride, meaning that at this point a girl has to be over the age of 18 to get married, although it's not being respected, at least there is a law against it, um, it's been the approach the educational approach is being forwarded through the local communities especially in the rural areas where most 
families are very eager to have their very young girls, sometimes 9, 10, 11, married to older men who already have four or five other wives. And you can only imagine the the the, the life of torture that awaits that very uneducated and unprepared young girl. Sad. It's so sad. Um, so, so Nina, talk a little bit more about the economics of this. I mean, so it's obviously beyond just controlling women's sexuality, right? That is the main reason, because most families treasure, well, they, they feel their girl is the possession of the father in most cases, and the mother wants to make sure that she helps maintain the the reputation of the family, and that is why she's very active in making sure that the girl is joining the secret society, used to be at poverty, now it happens when she's three or four, and then as the genital organs grow, sometimes the the girl has to undergo this brutal cutting of the, of the genital organs several times during her lifetime. Mm. So it has, it actually the presence of of a little education has worsened the situation of the girls and it has become their life has become even more difficult because of that and um but the economic factor is based on the fact that um the women who are performing the cutting they are called in Sierra Leone and other tribes in the area the sowes they are the women who hold the highest social power because of their position as leaders in the female secret society. The so bondo, they're benefiting, they're, they're so benefiting, they benefit because, with status. Because not only the status, but at the same time, for this procedure to be done, then you have sometimes a, a family has to save for a year or more the school fees that they will, rather, they, will, they will have to pay for a child's education. So they will remove the girl from the school and use that money to make sure that she is fixed or initiated into the secret society. And once she becomes a member, that means she is now worthy to be married. And the, 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 the payment that is given to this woman dictates the degree to which this practice happens. Because the cutting can be done very on different levels. So the more the girl is caught, the better it is for the family. Mm-hmm. And this is all based on how much the woman will be paid. Wow. And of course, there is a, another issue that unfortunately it's not very well known in the West, and that was part of the the research that I I did during my dissertation, is the political aspect of FGM. It is said that FGM is a political tool. Why? Because sometimes the parliamentarians in a country like Sierra Leone that need to get the support of, let's say, women or just a village, they go and they sponsor, they sponsor, meaning they pay for mass initiations. So in that way, it really helps the, the head of the family who might have maybe 15 or 20 girls and the cousins and all these young ladies that have to undergo this practice. He saves, they, they are saved from paying the fees 
So, of course, in that way, they would definitely vote for that political member. So it is is very unfortunate that this practice has not been exposed. And and that is one of the main reasons why when, when, when these parliamentarians, they go to the UN and they are asked to pass law against the practice. And, of course, in New York, during all their meetings, they, of course, say, yes, of course, we will do that within our culture. And then the the challenges they face once they come back is the is is the revolt of the women who feel that people from the outside are interested in changing what is very sacred to them because of their belief that their identity will be shaped through this very mm-hmm. special ritual. And mm-hmm. ironically, it is the the what they believe that they become women by having their female genitals cut. So regardless of the education that some of them are receiving later in life when they are in their late 50s or 60s as grandmothers, they're being encouraged not to allow their granddaughters to go through that. They're being told about the harmful FGM is now named a harmful traditional practice and they are being told about some of the complications and the fact that when a girl ends up bleeding to death is not because she was weak but because of the medical complications not to mention the potential childbirth complications the newborn death and all the statistics that are not being recorded not only because of the high poverty level of a country like Sierra Leone but also because of the superstition that is associated with the practice and the convenience of the religious and traditional leaders, which are mostly men. So combine economics with lack of education, with the political ambition of MPs. FGM is a very difficult topic to even deal with, and yet is the central point of Sierra Leone. In fact, after the civil war in Sierra Leone that, uh, that changed its face from uh, the the producer of diamonds to the producer of culture. So the symbol, the cultural symbol of the country is the mask that is worn by the woman who performs this mutilation. So the symbol of, the, the cultural symbol of Sierra Leone that everyone is very proud of is what they regard the strongest female secret society in Africa. So there are a lot of con- there's a lot of controversy on this topic because most people don't even want to discuss this because they feel it is not culturally sensitive and uh, women are advocating for the continuity of FGM. When it, when I when I attend conferences, everyone when they hear that I'm from Sierra Leone, they say, "Well, that is the special case," and they don't want to talk about it. Well, I feel that my position as a person who came from a different culture, from communist Romania, as a child, at a time when it was expected of me to undergo this practice, and because my father had a very high position in the government of Sierra Leone, it was even more expected for me to undergo that. I speak about that in my book. Um, I decided to investigate, to open up the discussion, to to find out from men and from women what is it that is so entrenched in this practice that nobody 
feels comfortable to even bring it up in a public setting. So it's been a very interesting uh, process. And along the way, (laughs) we have been able to find others who feel the same. And and this is what I continue to do. So well, well, Nina. Um, so you know, most definitely, such a worthy, uh, you know, mission mission you have here. But um, explain to us. Um, oh, okay, so I read your bio, and I realized that um, you know you got sent to Sierra Leone. How old were you when when you left Romania? I was thirteen, one three, when I left Romania uh, so, under the pretext. So how close close did you actually, I mean, did you actually get close to having this done to you? I mean, how did you manage at 13 years old to avoid it? You know, because you were just a child, basically. Were you just that strong-willed and smart that you could manipulate (laughs) the situation to avoid it? I mean, how how did it not happen to you? I was very, very lucky. And um, uh, first, I for the first few years, I was in a boarding school in Lagos, Nigeria. And because our school vacations were during the summer, usually this ritual happens during the dry season. And the dry season is at Christmas time. So our school vacations were never long enough for us to undergo this practice. Uh, however, uh, my uh, bio does say that I was uh, ready to go and study medicine in Bucharest when my father decided that uh, before I do that, I need to become a proper Sierra Leonean woman. What that meant at the age of now, 19, so I was 19 at this time, I was, uh, um, I wa- he arranged for me to be kidnapped and taken to the secret society in the bushes. And um, I, because it's a secret society, no one tells you about it. It is truly about following your instinct and knowing that danger is all around you and nobody talks about it. And I kept having dreams about it. And that's, I I actually speak about that in my book. And uh, when I sense that something terrible was about to happen and I was unable to get any straight answers from anyone but at the same time everyone kept laughing everyone means my my friends who are all uh, Sierra Leoneans and other family members they say oh don't worry you'll find out about it after you go and you also become a member but I didn't know what was about to happen to me I didn't know about this what we are speaking about today as SGM and uh, I was. I decided to um, to uh, engineer my escape, and it was a very very complex process. And um, that is why I'm here today. I probably would have, at the age of 19, having to undergo that practice would have been much more uh, traumatic and difficult. Especially that um, one of the main reasons why they really wanted to have me in was uh, curiosity. Uh, they couldn't believe that a white person would be able to um, to withstand that degree of pain. So for them, it was curiosity. And for me, wow. it was my life. Well, because first, while I was in Africa, uh, unfortunately, um, both in Nigeria and in Sierra Leone, I was referred to as a white person uh, for many reasons. So I, I do address that in my book as well, the, uh, the racial... Uh, 
uh, challenges that I experience. Right, right, right. Well, you know, um, that's some that's something you and I share in common. And what I mean is, you know, you experience the segregation, and that's what sort of led you to your social activism. It's funny how things like that happen to us. You know, um, you know, I was part of a. Uh, a woman's group. It has nothing to do with FGM, but I was part of a woman's group and experienced, um, you know, discrimination in, amongst the women. And that pain that I, um, you know, got from my so-called sisters really started making me look at any kind of um, situation where, you know, where it's not inclusive, you know, where, where we're separatists you know, where we're intolerant. And that's really what, you know, in a way led me to my social justice activism as well. You know, I never wanted another person to suffer, you know, that injustice of um, of, of being discriminated against, you know, for uh, just bigoted reasons, you know. But, um, well, you know, I'm not going to ask you to give away too much because people will have to get your book Wildflower, but I can't wait to read how you as 19 managed to escape you know um so we'll you know unless you want to talk about that you know we can dangle that carrot a little bit uh you know to (laughs) to to listeners um because i think it would be really interesting to find out how you escaped at 19 you know where did you go did you have enough money who gave you refuge all of that you know that's got to be a very very interesting story and um wow uh you were It was very. It was a very difficult decision to make because although I was uh, not happy with the with the deception, I was initially told I was gonna leave communist Romania and go to school in London, and I ended up in Lagos, the other L, in Nigeria, uh, where my father was a diplomat, and then in Sierra Leone, and I escaped about uh, two weeks before the war broke out in Freetown. The the decade long war that was that also mutilated uh, many people based on the local resources. It was the civil war of Sierra Leone. So I um, I was uh, it was a very difficult process, and with a father who had such social influence as mine, it was very challenging. So I'm told that uh, the read of my story is uh, like an Agatha Christie uh, detective book. <laughs> and um, I, it, it, it's very nice to hear it from other people because when I think about it, I still uh, have to catch my breath. So I escaped extremely uh, close to uh, to being caught towards the end. And um, I ended up uh, going back to Romania. And then from Romania, I was fortunate enough to come to the U.S. And that's when I started uh, seeking some explanation for what I it finally found out what I escaped because right. should I have known then what I was running away from uh, in that in that uh, situation for me it was truly um, a blessing that I really didn't know all the details and uh, it was extremely challenging um, of course mixing the race factor with the fact that uh, women had at that time as a young lady of 19 years old who I was very motivated to continue my education, 
my my father was very highly educated a, at that time a political figure in the country and um, and yet um i was expected to just give up everything get ready for marriage by being initiated into the secret society i will i would like to um uh, read just a, a paragraph from my book will that be sure, okay sure absolutely go right ahead I I feel that this will um, uh, show a little bit of the struggle that uh, once you are in a in a in a place where everyone believes that what is what that a, a woman's role is the way it's it's uh, it's projected by everyone around you it's very difficult for someone to find his or well in most cases her own voice and stand up against the injustice and uh, sometimes this struggle brings it closer to people who perhaps they've never had to to fight for for something that was so important to them, like their own body, in right. terms of being isolated. Yeah, because so, uh, you're surrounded. I, you're surrounded by people in a bubble, and it's all normal for them, and uh, they don't even question it. It's just uh, it's just the way it is. Yeah, so it almost feels as if now you are the one who is a little bit crazy and everything uh-huh. else and everyone is the normal one. But uh-huh. I will just read this shortly. Sure. The desire, to, the desire to replace all I had, lost with unrealistic love and trust for my African father, led me to spend endless hours trying to convince myself that I should want what I did not want. This conversation kept playing in my mind over and over again. Why would you refuse to leave? Because I am not that kind of a girl. What kind? The kind that runs away with an air ticket sent by a man. Why not? Because I will disgrace my father and everyone will think badly of me. Why do you care? Because I am a good girl. So, you just want to donate your body to be mutilated and possibly killed just to show how good you are? No. When I got to the no, my thoughts took a different route. Maybe it will not hurt that much. Are you crazy? They're going to cut you in between your legs, just like you saw them do in your dream. And you will bleed to death. Remember, you're really afraid of pain. Yeah, that's true. But I can try to be brave. Yes, I will be courageous. Maybe I will faint from the start, and then when I will wake up, things will not be so bad. I fainted before, and I don't remember anything at all. Yeah, what about if they don't, if you don't wake up? Are you just going to let them decide when you die? Ha, Janina, what do you say to that? I remember how painful it was to provoke myself that way. Mm. So I I feel that this was, uh, it it took a very long time to decide to, to, to run away from something that now when you, when I look back and I see the whole picture, and when I share with you and people from your audience, uh, everyone say, well, why, why would you even doubt that since you had an opportunity? Because of the way that everyone made it seem that it is the grandest thing to be a member of the secret society. And it is very normal for, for a girl to do that, and it's expected. And that's what motivated me to study it and what motivated me to go back in the mouth of the lion, as they say, and try to find other people who were outraged 
by by what was going on and some of the activists I'm working with who had sisters or they themselves had major complications that impacted their lives and continue to create very severe health issues for them and uh, they together we have worked on building uh, a safe house there was no such thing and and I must say you asked me about the christian i did i did seek refuge i did go to to churches to ask uh, because of that uh, at that time it was part of our studies were bible studies and coming from communist romania where of course i there was no religion um it was very strange for me to learn about the Bible, but when I saw that it was we were supposed to love each other and protect, and it was the church had such a father figure, I went to ask for help, and I was turned down. And I also speak about that in my book, and uh, and and I was told that uh, I have to obey what my parents want, although it was against the belief of the church that um, uh, this kind of rituals should continue. But there was nothing that they were able to do for me, and um, it was very scary. What um, what a sh- oh it's it's an incredible story Nina um you know and 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 you know just so that listeners um I, I mean I've talked about this before so you know I I don't want to assume that the you know my audience heard that conversation years ago so um, I want to talk a little bit uh, about what actually happens and then I want to talk about you know what we can do to you know to help fight this and um you know, more solution-oriented. But, you know, I've always heard, and correct me if I'm wrong, that, you know, when they sew the woman back up after this mutilation, they sew her up so that urine can pass through, so that, um, you know, her her, uh, menstrual blood can pass through. But, it, but you know it, it and and you know and on her wedding night you know it it's the you know the the penis of her husband that's going to you know sort of i hate to say rip her open but i don't know what else to say i mean i i think that's what happens i and and i mean is that not the case i mean is isn't that sort of the scenario from what i have heard about women who unfortunately experienced the most severe form of FGM, which is called type 3 or infibulation. And uh, what you just described is very true. And in the infibulation, uh, which is the most extreme form, almost two-thirds of the female genitalia is removed. And that includes the inner walls of the vagina, and then everything is sewn back together, uh using very anesthetic ways of uh, non medical procedures and this is uh this constitutes about fifteen percent of f g m worldwide and and so what would what would the all right so that's the worst case scenario what's the least um what's the the least that would happen to a girl so in type 1 and type 2 of FGM, which is mostly practiced in West Africa, and that is about 80% of FGM that is worldwide, uh, cl- the clitoris is removed. 
So sometimes just part of the clitoris is being cut off or the total excision of labia minora, meaning that they just cut in, cut the outside and part of the inside of the woman genital organs. And sometimes goat's intestines are used to sew back the inner lips. And most girls are left to heal without any medical attention. It's, it's, it's very important. It, it's incredible they don't die of infection. Because there is no reported, um, they, are not, they don't often report the infections and the bleeding to death and the statistical information, especially from countries like Sierra Leone, where everything goes on the superstitious or experiences when isolated places and we don't know, it's very difficult for those in the medical profession to be able to use the, the, the facts from a medical perspective to influence the, the families to help them stop the practice. So, which has really helped most of the activists to present this information as part of a human rights violation because it really affects not only physically but mentally, emotionally, and psychologically women, girls throughout their life. And uh, apart from the severe bleeding and the problems urinating that happened for a lifetime, there was an excellent movie that is called Desert Flower. It's actually the story of a very famous model called Waris Derry, and she is also the FGM ambassador to uh, the United Nations. It illustrates how a woman who has undergone the most severe type, which is practiced in Somalia, which is where she's from in East Africa, sometimes it takes between 15 to 20 minutes for each time a girl needs to urinate because mm. everything has been sewn up. So it is very difficult for that to happen. And there are all kinds of complications at birth and sometimes uh, because of the the damage that is done to the women's uh, organs, there is also it also causes the newborn deaths. Mm. And uh, unfortunately, even though this was supposed to be... Um, uh, uh, a practice that is done during adolescence for puberty. Unfortunately, it, sometimes it started from when the girl is just a few weeks old and then when she turns one or two. So one girl might undergo this practice five or more times during her lifetime. And every time she has to give birth, she has to be open and then sewn back again. So it is... Um, Mm. It, it is very traumatic. It, 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 well, it, it almost seems like it's misogyny, too. You know, I mean, it's hatred of women. Uh, it's, it's an abusive form of control. Um, I, I mean, it's just insidious, especially when you think about the economics of it and the, the political aspects of it. I mean, these, these young girls are being used as pawns. Um, yes. It's sickening, really. I, I mean, Nina, so... so so tell me, when I look at TV shows of Africa, 
And, you know, you see these, um, I mean, how widespread is it? I guess that's what I'm thinking. Like, you know, recently in the news, you know, they talked about Boko Haram had had uh, grabbed these young girls and took them into the forest and, uh, you know, nobody did anything to get the girls back. Would those girls have been, sub, you know, subject to this? I mean, whenever we see... African women from Africa on television is you know is it the chances very good that these women or these young girls have undergone this I mean how widespread is it in Africa, most North and Sub-Sahara countries practice that. However, it's based on tribes. So there are some areas, uh, the Boko Haram incident happened in Nigeria. So there are some areas in Nigeria that do practice that. It is highly influenced by Islam, but it is, I am not familiar with every tribe in Nigeria, so I will not be able to tell you specifically if they might have undergone that practice or not. But it is very widely spread in West Africa, especially in the areas surrounding Sierra Leone, Guinea, Liberia, Mali, in all the Saharan countries, and especially the Horn of Africa, which is Ethiopia, Somalia, Sudan, Eritrea. In Egypt, both Christians and Muslims practice FGM that is not well well known. Of course, in different forms, so not everywhere the most severe type is practiced, and there is a lot of controversy on 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 answering a question which you have just posed because African women feel that they are viewed as victims when they themselves, because of the way they are embracing and the meaning that this practice has in their family life uh, and the misunderstanding that they feel is being uh, associated with the practice when Westerners speak or misunderstand what happens, um, uh, uh, it's very difficult to say whether every image of every African woman that we see here is is of a woman who has been mutilated. But I must speak for the country where I studied and where I'm an expert that majority of women who have were born and spent most of their young and adolescent time in Sierra Leone, unless they are from the minority of the tribe of Creoles, who are the returned slaves from the U.S., most likely have undergone the practice. It is a very sensitive topic because no one likes to speak about it. The women don't feel don't want to discuss it. The the men feel that conveniently that, oh, this is a woman issue, and it is not a woman issue. This is a human right issue because it is human dignity that we are dealing with. And uh, and because of that, the conversation and just dealing with some of the images that you've created when you described what you think and what you understand and when you see people on TV, it's very important to at least come out in the open and for us not to hide behind names but to just say it like it is and to take action and stand in solidarity with those who are out there in the villages of Sierra Leone risking their life and going to speak with the fathers, with the religious leaders. Actually, it's the men that are making the decisions when it comes to FGM, but it is the women that are taking the actions. Yeah, very so important. So when, when, when we are... Uh, making taking action to try to educate 
it has to be inclusive education. It cannot be only the women educated because the decisions are women are not decision makers in countries like Sierra Leone. Right, or very right. few women are decision makers. And in fact, those decision makers are ones who whose power is also sustained by the continuity of this practice. So they are not the right people to, to concentrate our attention on. So getting the young children, both boys and girls, to understand and respect basic human rights and the fact that a girl can be just as smart as a boy. So stopping segregation of genders from the very beginning, it's a very good point to start. We have schools that we are supporting through SWF International where we are giving the opportunity of free education, enabling those who are the parents to have their children taken care of, and they don't have to worry about making sure that they are initiated into the secret society. Boys also go to secret society. That is a whole different topic. But we are concentrating mostly on making sure that the girls are not exposed to FGM at a very young age. And as they continue to go through school and they get secondary school, they have sponsors, so they are protected, and then we take it further. Wow. We also have a safe house. And there, it's the only safe house for girls who run away from their families because they, they want to reject the practice with the presence of international organizations. Now more people know what happens to them when they join because the idea of a secret society is presented the way we understand here being sweet 16. Or when I speak at universities, I tell my students that Oh, well, it's just like being part of a sorority. Oh, it sounds like fun, you're going to party and everything, but they just forget to tell you that in order for you to belong, you need to go through this. And everyone right. is torn to secrecy. How convenient. Because right. you have sexuality and secrecy mixed, and then there is no hope for the girls. Right. In fact, right. there, is, there, is, there is also a problem, as you must have heard, in the in the United States, you have up to 200 girls and women who are at risk because of vacation cutting. When you asked me how come that I was not uh, mutilated when I first came from Romania at the age of 13, probably I didn't even speak the language, so I couldn't understand anything at the time. Because I was in school in a different country in Nigeria, I was in boarding school. So I could have been a case of vacation cutting, but the vacations were not long enough. However, you have people from England and from the U.S. taking their daughters back to their uh, original countries and the practicing countries in various areas of Africa and, or the Middle East. And their daughters return to school in a totally different state right. because not only physically they might have healed, and now they have something that is called medicalization of FGM, meaning that it's not as brutally done in the bushes and it doesn't have the cultural factor as strong as it was initially designed. But you have doctors or special nurses whom you pay and and the torture continues. It, they're still any, being sick. Nina, do you have any idea how much these people get paid to mutilate a girl? No, I do not know exactly how much they will get paid, but um, the equivalent of no more than $100, which, of course, for a country like Sierra Leone, it's a lot of money. Yeah. And uh, 
meaning that it is we are part of our programs with uh, my organization is to not only educate but create alternative ways for these women to earn their to maintain their social position while still making a lot of money within their their communities and at this time when Ebola has just changed everything all the, the way people understand life in Sierra Leone it is we have used the opportunity to discuss the issue of FGM to address the economic factor to ask them what is it that we can do for them and most of the answers are again economics and it sounds very sad to hear that the reason why so many girls have let's say escaped being mutilated this uh, since christmas time through now is simply because uh, ebola has made it inconvenient for everyone to 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 touch and so they escape but we know that there is another christmas coming up december right. is not so far away right and we we i don't think that that even if we are constantly keeping the conversation going, it's going to be very challenging for us to be able to get those women to change their mind when they are they have the freedom to continue. So education is very important along with with empowering them on the economic factor. That's what I'm well, you know, to this say. this gives a whole new meaning to Christmas. You know, I think now when I think about Christmas, I'm going to think about these poor young girls who are getting shipped off on their Christmas vacation, uh, you know, to these, you know, African homelands and, uh, you know, possibly undergoing uh, this mutilation. So, so Nina, you know, people in my audience, you know, people who are outraged by this or people who are just curious or people who you know, uh, or well-meaning. I mean, is there anything the average person can do to help this, to stop this? Well, there are many organizations in various areas of Africa, Middle East, India, Pakistan, and South America, where and Australia, where this practice continues to, to affect many girls who are actually working with community members like my organization that works at the grassroots level and we are taking different approaches from providing safe houses, protection for girls, legal representation, free schools and boarding schools and education for the family as well as um, open uh, sponsoring community discourses on FGM where all members from communities engage in discussion and just breaking the silence on this issue has become one of the most effective way of dealing with it because that way some girls can can figure out that oh if somebody comes and kidnaps you in the middle of the night I better run because they're going to probably do something that's going to harm me so right. one way that of course it's very important to continue to have support. And I know, especially with Ebola in West Africa, it's going to be very hard for most most of my friends and the audience around the world and people I know to want to go there to help and volunteer, which is something that we were doing before. However, contributions, financial contributions have 
always made such a big difference and uh, there is a lot of transparency and accountability on the way that we deal with it and I can speak for my organization and some of the other the other partners that I work with that have a direct impact um, also all the funds from um, that I'm uh, getting from my book wildflower that's available on Amazon I also donate towards uh, the different programs that we are working on Sierra Leone. Uh, specifically, as you now are thinking about Christmas in a different way, we are hoping to make some major changes in collaboration with the U.S. Embassy and some other very uh, effective organizations that are on the ground in Sierra Leone to help bring about some major reforms and continue our existing projects throughout uh, this year. And of course, my organization has been around for the past uh, 10 and a half years, since July 2004. And uh, I'm very, I, I, I have joy every day knowing that, uh, that the, the, the ordeal that I had to undergo, even though I did not physically uh, deal with FGM itself, but it scarred my life in more, than, uh, in more ways than I can probably explain here. Um, it has it has it has transferred into giving opportunities. So without forcing people to make a decision, but presenting options. Right. And I am I am very grateful to everyone who has supported, and of course anyone who is interested can visit uh, swfinternational.org, and that is the organization I founded. And of course, if you like to read my story, my book. Wildflower. Okay, and and that website is wildflowerthebook.com. You know, you're making me think about uh, that girls' school that uh, Oprah Winfrey opened and finances. I wonder if any. I wonder if Oprah is even aware of this, and <laughs> if if that is a refuge for girls escaping it, or if the girls who go to that school are even subjected to this. Um, I, I mean, I don't expect Africa, you to know. But <laughs> yes, actually, I have been asked that before because, of course, I would very much love to have the kind of influence that opera has to be able to affect and uh, protect more girls in Sierra Leone. But um, in South Africa, uh, there are few tribes that are practicing FGM. So I am sure that uh, some of this have, have been brought to her attention and because of the international visibility of her school, that is again so important to have international people pay attention to the fact that this continues to happen so they don't feel isolated from the rest of the world. And, right. and, and it, it is a very isolating experience. But I think because of that, it will be most likely that that the girls selected to go to the to Opera's Academy are very protected and they have their dignity and they will probably become very productive uh, contributors to the society. Well, Nina, I hope um, uh, I, I know we 
when we first met, I was talking to you about that Goddess Spirit Rising conference. Uh, I think it's in October of uh, of this year. I hope the organizers contacted you to maybe have you come give a talk. Uh, if if they didn't and you're still interested, you know, email me tomorrow and um, you know I'll make that introduction again because I, I know when we first met they weren't real organized yet uh, in terms of inviting people to present, but. Uh, they are now, and I can't imagine that they wouldn't want you to uh, give a talk, especially if you're in the Southern California area. Yes, I am, and thank you so much. And, yes, I think you did send me. I, I still have your card with the sunflower, and I remember you wrote that on it, and uh, I will make sure to to apply because I will. I think that uh, speaking about this at the conference and encouraging people to join in the or ongoing fight against FGM is very important, and it gives you a sense of uh, you'll see Christmas in a different way, as you said. Yes, yes, absolutely. Well, Nina, um, thank you so much for what you're doing in the world. And I guess my final question for you is: Do you still talk to your father, or was that did, was that all sort of cut off when you escaped? Um, I speak about that in the book, and my father uh, passed away about 10 years ago. I had the opportunity to meet with him and ask him every possible question as he was uh, running for the vice president of the country. And uh, that's one of the reasons why the doors opened for me to go back to Sierra Leone and interview all the members of the parliament who are his colleagues on the issue of FGM. I must say that he was very ashamed of me, although at that time I was in a PhD program. I was a very productive citizen here, and I was doing many wonderful things, but he felt I totally disgraced him, and I I was not an accom- I was a failure as a woman because I refused to uh, respect tradition, and um, it was on that note that we parted. And um, part of this I do describe in my book and the importance of forgiveness as we continue to embrace our own mission and to pour our heart and use the energy that we have not only to heal our own heart and ourselves, but at the same time impact and change the life of so many people from across the globe. What a story, Nina. Really, um, I, I would love to see uh, your story become a, um, you know, a movie of the week or something. Uh, that would that would be incredible. I, I hope you, you know, I, I I hope you try to make that happen. I mean, I know this other model did that documentary, but um, you would reach so many more people if you could get somebody interested in actually doing a movie rather than a documentary. Um, what a what a story this would be! Um, you know, somebody like Angelina Jolie to to sponsor it. You know, um, wow! <laughs> Thank you so much for the wonderful good wishes. I accept them. I am in the right city for that. Just Hollywood is right around the corner from my office here in Los Angeles. But in the meantime, I will continue to do my work, and I attract that energy and may your words come true for the purpose of uh, spreading the uh, continue to spread the awareness on this and the and stopping the violence against women and saying it like it is 
Yeah, so thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Karen, because you, you really did. Um, I enjoyed my interview with you very much. Well, thank you, Nina. And let's just mention the title of your book again is Wildflower. The website for the book is wildflowerthebook.com. And the very important organization that's been doing this good work for more than a decade, uh, SWF International, is uh, swfinternational.org. So please, listeners, go there. Find out more about this. If you don't know about FGM, you owe it to yourself to um, to educate yourself on this on this topic, um, really, because this is a human rights uh, issue. It's a woman's issue, um, and as uh, you know, so many of us are out in the world uh, trying to make the world a better place for women. Uh, this is just one of those things on a long list of ways that uh, women are marginalized, devalued, oppressed. I mean, I could go on and on, uh, but I think you get it. Uh, That's why you listen to this show. Well, Nina, good night, and uh, I look forward to maybe seeing you at the conference, at the Goddess Spirit Rising conference in October. Uh, we'll have to chat in the months ahead and, uh, you know, see if that all works out, because I'd certainly love to, uh, you know, to see you again in person. Thank you so much, Karen, and oh, thank you for continuing all your work. Thank you. Oh, well, well, you know, it, it takes, it's going to take us all <laughs> to change the world. Well, so good, good night, Nina, and best of luck to you on this important mission. Thank you, and goodbye. Thank you. All right. Well, we are going to take just a brief break here, and um, let me see. I have a, a different – well, you know what? We're just going to jump into uh, the next uh, half of the show here. And uh, Well, no, I'm going to take that back. I'm going to go ahead and uh, take a little break, give my voice – Uh, a little bit of a chance to rest, and then we're going to come back. I'm going to tell you about the the priest, and the Catholic priest in Massachusetts, who came back from the dead. He had been dead for 48 minutes, and when they brought him back to life, he came back talking about God is actually a woman, that God is a goddess. And then, of course, as I promised, uh, I'm going to talk to you about the, the goddess roots uh, of Mardi Gras. Uh, but first, let's just um, go ahead and play a short song by Elaine Silver called Tis Time. Uh, it'll be about two minutes, so you have a moment if you want to uh, go make a bathroom break or go grab a cup of tea or just uh, sit back and enjoy the music. I'll be back with you in two minutes. Tis time, tis time.
right before I started the show, and um, apparently, uh, and, and his picture is here, too, uh, it seems to be a, a credible, legitimate story, um, a Catholic priest from Massachusetts was officially dead for more than 48 minutes before medics were able to miraculously restart his heart, has revealed a shocking revelation that will change everything you once believed. The 71-year-old cleric, Father John Michael O'Neill, claims he went to heaven and met God, which he describes as a warm and comforting motherly figure. Father John Michael O'Neill was rushed to the hospital on January 29th after a major heart attack, but was declared clinically dead soon after his arrival. With the aid of a high-tech machine called Lucas Tube that kept the blood flowing to his brain, Doctors at the Massachusetts General Hospital managed to unblock vital arteries and return his heart to a normal rhythm. The doctors were afraid he would have suffered some brain damage from the incident, but he woke up less than 48 minutes later and seemed to have perfectly recovered. The elderly man claims that he has clear and vivid memories of what happened to him while he was dead. He describes a strange out-of-body experience experiencing an intense feeling of unconditional love and acceptance, as well as being surrounded by an overwhelming light. He claims that at that point in his experience, he went to heaven and encountered God, which he describes as a feminine, mother-like being of light. And these are his words. I'm quoting him here. He says, Her presence was both overwhelming and comforting, states the Catholic priest. She had a soft and soothing voice, and her presence was as reassuring as a mother's embrace. The fact that God is a holy mother instead of a holy father doesn't disturb me. She's everything I hoped she would be and more. Goes on to say that the declarations of the cleric caused quite a stir in the Catholic clergy of the archdiocese over the last few days, causing the archbishop to summon a press conference to try and calm the rumors. Despite the disapproval of his superiors, Father O'Neill says that he will continue dedicating his life to God and spread the word of the Holy Mother. He says, his quote here, I wish to continue preaching, says the elderly cleric. I would like to share my new knowledge of the Mother, the Son, and the Holy Ghost with all Catholics and even all Christians. God is great and almighty despite being a woman. 
I don't know, something about that despite being a woman doesn't sit well with me, but okay. Uh, And the article closes by saying, the Roman Catholic Archdiocese of Boston has not confirmed, however, if they will allow Father O'Neill to resume his preaching in his former parish in South Boston. Very interesting, is it not? Well, um, let me go ahead and um, do that commercial that uh, I owe Joe Carson about dancing with Gaia, and uh, because that does help me pay, uh, uh, payment for the commercial does help me uh, stay on the air, and uh, then we will be back, and I will talk about the goddess roots of Mardi Gras. Most people see humankind as really separate from nature and separate from the earth. I'm as much of this earth as a rock or a tree is. And I came out of it. This is my mother planet. I grew out of this earth. As long as we conceive of divinity as above us or outside of us, or that our bodies are somehow less divine than spirit, there's no way that we can change our course. Well, what you were hearing were some excerpts from the uh, documentary uh, film Dancing with Gaia by Joe Carson. It talks about uh, nature and reconnecting with our sacred sexuality and uh, learning to um, connect with those energies of nature uh, that that helps us know that um, you know nature is alive and all around us, and uh, you know we can be a part of it. We can. Uh, get a sense of that inner connection. Uh, you can go to the website, dancingwithgaia.com, and uh, when you buy the DVD, which is only $20, uh, you also get a 45-page mini booklet. And uh, I have viewed the film and the booklet, and it is very, very nice indeed. Um, I learned things from it. I think it's uh, for, for newbies as well as people who have been around a while, um, and it would make a great gift as well. So that is Dancing with Gaia uh, by Joe Carson. So um, Mardi Gras, as I said in the beginning um, of the show, when I lived my entire life in New Orleans, we used to uh, celebrate Mardi Gras, of course, uh, every year. And uh, it was a lot of fun. And, you know, Mardi Gras parades are not like the parades most people probably see. Um, you know, where you everybody sort of just stands there and waves to the girl on the back of the Cadillac, I mean, on the back of the convertible, and, uh, you know, bands pass by and maybe people on horseback. And um, it's not a very participatory experience. You're kind of just standing there watching. Well, Mardi Gras parades are nothing like that at all, because if you've seen pictures of it on TV or maybe you've gone down to New Orleans on vacation or maybe you've you know gone to you know I I think it's Brazil and done their Mardi Gras you know it's a whole different animal it's very active you know you you know you yell at the people on the floats to throw you beads and doubloons and um, you know so you want to catch this stuff now after you catch it well what do you do with it you know it sits in a corner somewhere in your house for a while Um, but you know it's the fun of of uh, the hunt so to speak, you know, to catch the catch 
the stuff. And, uh, you know, there's a crew of Zulu on Mardi Gras Day that actually throws coconuts. Um, you know, in New Orleans on St. Patrick's Day, they have parades and they throw cabbages to, uh, you know, to the people who, you know, come out to watch the parade. So, you know, in, in New Orleans, you go out there and you catch things. You know, you don't just stand there and maybe wave to the pretty girls or, or listen to the music. So anyway, uh, so all my life, of you know, I did the Mardi Gras thing. And on Mardi Gras Day, people would dress in costumes and actually go out for Mardi Gras. That's another part of the participatory thing. You know, there's balls and there's king cake parties um, that start in January and go all through the season and up until Mardi Gras when Lent starts. And, uh, you know, I did all of this without uh, knowing or even bothering to research the roots of Mardi Gras. Well, you know, I leave Louisiana, New Orleans, move to California, discover the goddess, and lo and behold, I discover the roots of Mardi Gras are very pagan. Now, I wrote about it in my Sacred Places of Goddess 108 Destinations book, and um, and I will read some of the excerpts uh, from that entry um, on the View Carré uh, in Louisiana. The View Carré is actually a, in the oldest section of, um, of New Orleans, um, you know, where the French and the Spanish settled way back when, you know, when, you know, there was the Louisiana Purchase. And, you know, we're talking about the earliest roots, uh, the earliest years of um of uh, of New Orleans, you know, in, in its in its very beginnings, it became called the the View Parade, and um, so let me just uh, start here, and um, I hope you'll enjoy this, and then I'm going to close with telling you the names of some of the the Mardi Gras parades that are um, uh, named after goddesses and and gods too, but you know, but goddesses as well. So um, here's the excerpt from Sacred Places of Goddess. The essence of goddess as a celebration of life holds sway in New Orleans within the core of the people. Life there moves at a slower pace, and New Orleanians see no reason to catch up. It is a city proud of its diverse cultural and ethnic heritage, where people look for just about any excuse to indulge in the pleasures of food, drink, and partying. There is a sense of life being a bit more in sync with the natural rhythms and life's simple pleasures. Despite the influence of the Catholic Church, the lifestyle in New Orleans is hardly dogmatic or puritanical. In the Big Easy, as the city is often called, the spirit of the feminine is also reflected in the old-world charm of the architecture in the View Carré, and celebrations such as Mardi Gras with its pagan roots dating back to the rituals of the Lupercalia, Cabelli, and Addis, and in the worship of the uh, Virgin Mary, Our Lady of Guadalupe, and various goddesses in the Yoruban pantheon. Goddess lives in the steamy heat of the city whose motto is Let the Good Times Roll, and where Stella's raw sexuality in the story A Streetcar Named Desire exploded onto the screen. Goddess is alive in the women. Uh, and the women who gather at Our Lady of Guadalupe Church on the fringe of the View Carré, which means French Quarter, to say their rosary and pray the novena for their families. Her spirit lives in the flora and fauna of the dense bayous, the groves of oak trees with their Spanish moss, and in the luscious and heady scent of the exquisite flowers of the magnolia tree. 
It might even be said she lives in the strength and determination at the core of the southern woman who might sit ladylike in her finery on the veranda sipping a mint julep one day and be found pulling up crab traps wearing her old blue jeans the next. Goddess lives in the rituals of the Catholic Church which assimilated what it could not stamp out. She is an embodiment of life's earthy pleasures, and nowhere in the United States does she manifest her robust essence with such fun and flair as in her many faces that peek from behind her carnival mask in the view caray of New Orleans. Author Samuel Kinzer cites carnival origins starting in an urban and country reaction to strict Lenten rules and a groundswell of interest in a variety of social and agricultural practices in pre-Christian, Celtic, Germanic, Slavic, and Roman sun, wind, and water worship. On the other hand, Henry Schindler, a local author in New Orleans and an expert on Mardi Gras, believes the carnival season in New Orleans had its origins in spring rites of the Greek and Latin world, namely the two celebrations of the Lupercalia, and those of the goddess Cabelli and her concept or uh, Addis. The ecstatic festival of the Lupercalia, held on February 15th, was associated with Romulus and Remus, said to be the founders of Rome, who had been suckled by a she-wolf, possibly a metaphor for Mother Nature, when Romulus and Remus were infants. During the Roman festival, dogs and goats were sacrificed in a cave at the foot of Palatine Hill in Rome, and the meat consumed. Some of the animal's skin was turned into whips, and its blood, uh, these bloody whips were used to ritually paint the priests and two youths who then, wiped, then were wiped with wool dipped in milk, the nourishing fluid of the mother. During the celebration, priests chased naked men and women around the Palatine Hill of Rome and through the streets of other towns where the celebration was held, lashing out at them with these whips that were made of the, the animal skins, with the intention, according to Schindler, of forgiving them of their sins. You can see it's starting to become this blend of, you know, the need for forgiveness of Christianity with, uh, you know, with the pagan. Um, you know, the original pagan celebrations. Um, with this whipping, we are reminding, reminded of self-flagellation as a penance for sin. Uh, it makes me think of the, um, or was it the Da Vinci Code, where the guy was beating himself with the, um, with the, with the whip? Anyway, sorry, I, I digress. Um, let's see, where are we now? Uh, penance for sin. Okay. Other sources say women sought out the priests, thinking their touch from the the bloody thong would cure them of barrenness in a form of fertility magic. Schindler states the sacramental strips of the whip were called februa, F-E-B-R-U-A, februa. So it might be a good time to mention Mardi Gras, like Lupercalia, is usually held in February. When uh, there were not enough priests to perform the rituals, laypersons took over the duties and flayed themselves until they fell purified. It's no coincidence Mardi Gras, or Fat Tuesday, which was Tuesday of this week, this year, is the culmination of the carnival season, followed the next day by Ash Wednesday, and the beginning of 40 days of Lent, when Catholics fast and pray and ask forgiveness of their sins. 
Lent then ends with the celebration of Easter, which marks the resurrection of Jesus, who died and arose for the sins of humankind. And I often just call Jesus. He was the last in the line of the dying, rising kings. And it was at Lupercalia that Antony, the consul at Lupercus, offered a royal diadem to Caesar in 44 BCE. The festival of Lupercalia survived until at least 494 CE when the Bishop of Rome banned the rite and absorbed it into the Feast of Purification for the Virgin. So as I said before, you know, they just, Christianity just assimilated so much of the pagan stuff. The church was not happy with these pagan celebrations, but they couldn't quash the traditions. In the 5th century, some control was managed when they adapted the celebration and veiled it in Christian significance, renaming it Cornavellamen, a consolation of the flesh, which came to be called Cornival. In 600 CE, Pope Gregory officially set the often fluctuating date for Easter at the first Sunday following the vernal equinox. Thus, the Christian celebration for Easter, also the time of the more ancient goddess Astara rituals, would for all time overlay the spring rites of Cabeli and Attis, Ishtar and Tammuz and the Druids. Also, it must be remembered that this time was set aside for the more ancient goddess Astara rituals. Eventually, the ancient rituals to appease the gods and ask their forgiveness on a seasonal basis gave way to daily services on altars, often without personal interaction, by the masses. As Schindler put it, mirth became taboo. Long story short, Carnival came to New Orleans with the French. New Orleans was founded in 1718, and the first Mardi Gras parade was held in 1837. The parade and masked ball was a theater-like performance meant for entertaining the members of the Carnival Club and was usually based on a particular theme drawn from mythology or history, or paganism. The very first theme in North America portrayed demon actors from Milton's Paradise Lost with Persephone, the Fates, the Furies, Gorgons, and Isis all making their acting debut in the New World. Parade themes such as Egyptian theology have produced floats representing ideas of temples, tombs, palaces, pleasure, sacred animals, and resurrection. Since then, massed groups called crews, K-R-E-W-E-S, wearing very androgynous-looking costumes have looked to the feminine for inspiration as their organizations have taken the names of Pandora, Aphrodite, Diana, Isis, Rhea, Diana, Ishtar, Juno, Hestia, Nemesis, Hebe, Hera, Helena, Oshun, and Cleopatra. Obviously, one of the carnival crews of Mardi Gras did their homework because the crew of Babylon has as its captain King Sargon, the namesake of Ishtar's royal father. Oddly enough, New Orleans may even have some Egyptian connections, and we certainly know Egypt influenced Greeks and Rome. According to scholar R.E. Witt, quote, the carnival of medieval and modern times is the obvious successor of the Navigium Isidae, unquote, an ancient festival that began in Egypt, but in time, with the spread of Isis worship, began to be practiced throughout the Greco-Roman world. 
that Isidus Navigium, it means uh, Isis Navigatum, or, or Isis Navigates. In this festival, which included cross-dressing, processions, all manner of hilarity, music, and revelry, <coughs> a ship laden with gifts being offered to the goddess Isis was launched upon the waters, in exchange for her blessings for anyone dependent on the waters and the sailing season. <coughs> oh, I hope I can finish this. It should be noted in the fishing villages south of New Orleans, an annual blessing of the fleet is performed by Christian clergy for safety and abundance of the fishermen and their ships. I'm going to have to take a little break here. And I will be right back. Just a minute. I so apologize. Well, yeah, I've had a one-sided view of the divine. And the reason we've had a one-sided view of the divine is because the myths that uh, our society lives by are the myths that only speak about a male god. When, in fact, a goddess has been around for 30, 30 or 40,000 years, uh, we can look to the artifacts, we can look to the archaeological sites, we can look to the textiles, we can look to the myths. But, you know, because religion is about power and politics, uh, the sacred feminine has sort of been swept beneath the sands of time. And uh, the mythology of goddess uh, has been uh, obscured purposefully uh, because this is all about um, uh, uplifting uh, the patriarchy as opposed to um, having a balanced society where you have the attributes of the feminine and the masculine uh, in control in society. So when you consider that uh, one person's myth is another person's religion, uh, and, and when that myth is um, dominated by a male guide, well, then you have male leadership uh, that, that predominates in society. So as a result, women have been subjugated and goddesses uh, become our role models, they become our archetypes. So when we only have a male god that, that is at the center of society, well that sets the male gender up to be the leader of the society and, and that then um, subjugates women to sort of a second class supporting role rather than a partnership, rather than uh, an equal role where they are uh, in a sense, um, you know, looking over humankind together, or men and women, or uh, leading and ruling together. Well, I went ahead and played uh, one of those outtakes from uh, when I was in the film, Sam, uh, and I apologize for my losing my voice there, but I think I can uh, continue now. Uh, there's not much left, and I think my voice will hold out. So, again, my apologies. So, anyway, we were talking about um, the Isis Navigatum uh, ritual in ancient Egypt, how it was the predecessor to uh, processions and carnivals and uh, these ancient festivals. 
and R.E. Witt uh, describes the ancient festival of Isis and says, in this festival, which included cross-dressing, processions, and all manner of hilarity, music, and revelry, a ship laden with uh, gifts being offered to the goddess Isis was launched upon the waters in exchange for her blessings for anyone dependent on the waters and sailing season. It should be noted in the fishing villages south of New Orleans, an annual blessing of the fleets is performed by Christian clergy for safety and abundance of the fishermen in their ships. This is an obvious remnant of the Isidae Navigium festival of ancient times. Witt also cites the Christian Feast of Lights, or Epiphany, with the roots and the rituals of the priests of Isis. Interestingly, the Feast of the Epiphany on January 6th, also known as King's Day in New Orleans, is the kickoff of the carnival season in the city they care for God. Beginning on King's Day, New Orleanians begin a series of king cake parties. Within the cake is a plastic doll. The person getting the piece of cake with the doll hidden inside is obligated to host the next party. Thus, the party season continues up until Mardi Gras. Neo-pagans have taken to the idea of reclaiming the tradition of the king cake and associating it with the ancient customs of cakes, bread, or the preparation thereof as being sacred to goddess. And in one last association between goddess and January 6th, a date with so much meaning in New Orleans, with sites that within Gnosticism, this is the date Aeon, or Horus, was born to the goddess Isis. Like her sister cities of New York and Miami, the goddess is also within the New Orleans view Carré in the guise of the worship of the Yoruban goddesses of voodoo or voodoo spirituality. Religion scholars who track such things cite the Yoruban deities being worshipped more in the New World than in the Old whence they came. While some believe shops selling voodoo dolls are just for the tourists, because some are, there is a thriving community here in New Orleans that seriously worships the goddesses Yamaya, Oshun, and Oya. The voodoo temple run by Priestess Miriam on North Rampart Street along the fringe of the View Carré is one such example of authentic spirituality. With New Orleans and the View Carré located along the crescent of the Mississippi River, the aforementioned river goddesses are right at home, and their serious practitioners make an attempt to dispel misconceptions and teach those interested in their faith. There is an annual voodoo fest in New Orleans where visitors can get up close and personal with the reality of voodoo in New Orleans, where practitioners are involved in a hybrid version of syncretized Christian and Yoruban traditions. There's also a neo-pagan community actively involved in goddess spirituality, while others venerate the feminine divine in the guise of the Virgin and Our Lady of Guadalupe, the latter having a church honoring her on the outskirts of the View Carré. When coming to New Orleans during Mardi Gras, the most expensive time to visit for airfare and hotels uh, oh, yeah, I'm sorry, let me rephrase that. When coming to New Orleans during Mardi Gras, the most expensive time to visit for airfare and hotels, remember parades begin about seven days prior to Fat Tuesday, culminating with Rex and Comus, the oldest clubs, hitting the streets on Mardi Gras day and night. The larger, more elaborate parades are the weekend prior to Fat Tuesday or Mardi Gras. And scoring an invitation to a masked ball is quite difficult unless you have some local connections. 
And remember, when that doubloon comes your way from the masked rider on that float, let it drop to the ground. Don't bend over and try to pick it up right away. You step on it. And when the crush of the crowd eases off, then you bend over and pick it up. And and remember, when those floats are passing you by, you're supposed to yell, throw me something, mister. So Mardi Gras is not about waving to the pretty girl sitting on the back of convertibles, as I said a few minutes ago. It's about how much loot you can grab. Then going to Bourbon Street, having a drink, eating a great meal, the sacred pleasures of life. Just don't forget your mask. So anyway, what I was saying, if you ever do want to visit um, New Orleans, don't go the weekend just before Mardi Gras and um, and Mardi Gras Day, unless uh, if you want to save money, go the you know go and enjoy the parades that actually happen before uh, Mardi Gras Day. And if you want to see what one of these doubloons look like from uh, in, uh, the ISIS crew. I actually have one on my Facebook page. Uh, so you, you probably won't have to scroll down very far. I think it's uh, sort of near the top. So just go to Karen Tate uh, Facebook page, and um, you will see this, uh, this, this uh, excerpt that I read. If you want to print it out and save it, uh, you can print it out because I posted it on my blog, and you will see the, what the doubloon uh, looks like. So yeah, uh, Mardi Gras this year, uh, the 2015 parade um, um, uh, calendar here showed that um, they had the crew of Oshun, Cleopatra, Eve, Excalibur, Adonis, Nemesis, uh, Choctaw, Sparta, Caesar, Olympia, uh, the Titans, King Arthur, Arthur, Allah. Thor, the Druids, Nyx, Chaos, the Muses, Hermes, uh, Selene, Morpheus, Iris, Isis, Endymion, uh, Okeanus, Toth, Bacchus, Proteus, Orpheus, Zeus, Zulu, Rex, and Grilla. Uh, and Grilla, uh, that's a new one, actually, I think. And uh, I just actually learned about Grilla myself this year. Grilla was a um, either Sumerian or Babylonian goddess of healing. And her uh, animal was the dog. Uh, on my Facebook page, you can see... Uh, if you if you go back a little bit, I had some pictures where I was actually gifted with the opportunity to look at some ancient artifacts, and uh, that's when I learned about Grilla because I was actually able to hold that artifact of Grilla, which was uh, which was the dog. I I can't tell you how thrilling that was for me. Uh, what a gift that was! My Christmas gift. Um, so next week, uh, I hope I'm better. Uh, I hope my voice is back and I'm not uh, uh, having trouble talking again by next week. I should be I should be well. Uh, but I wanted to let you know that my guest next week is going to be Jean Shinoda Bolin. Uh, we are going to be uh, talking about uh, her new book on Artemis and how that archetype is infusing women today with courage, tenacity, and the spirit to change the world. I don't think you'll want to miss it. And um, let's see what else. Uh, I also want to remind you about um, the Goddess Conference that's coming up in Nashville, Tennessee in July, if you want more information about that. And if you're in Southern California, um, 
in the Los Angeles area, you don't want to miss all the stuff that's going to be happening in March. Uh, on March 14th, there's a sister-making class, uh, which uh, the sister was a sacred um, tool of priestesses in Egypt. Uh, they were sacred to Isis, Bast, uh, and Hathor. Uh, also on March 14th, uh, the beginning of the Joseph Campbell Roundtables is going to be happening in Venice at the Venice Library. Uh, Dr. James Riefeld is going to be coming and talking about his new book on Artemis of the Ephesians. He's probably the foremost authority on Artemis um, in, in you know across the globe, to tell you the truth. And then uh, on March 28th, there's going to be a big, big free party at the Goddess Temple of Orange County. Uh, it's going to be an Artemis ritual, and uh, they're going to teach those powerful, uh, magical words of Artemis uh, that were famous in the ancient world. They were called the Ephesian letters. Uh, you don't want to miss this if uh, if you're in you know, in the area and can make it. That's March 28th at the Goddess Temple. Uh, the doors will be locked at 7 o'clock, so if you uh, are interested, make sure you get there on time. If you have any questions, don't hesitate to email me or get in touch with me uh, on Facebook. Well, I think uh, that about does it for tonight. Uh, I am just about out of voice here. I want to thank you for tuning in, my dear listeners. You are gas in my tank. And um, thank you for uh, dealing with uh, my horrible voice issues tonight. Um, it's uh, you know unfortunate, but I think I made it through. So I'm going to close the show tonight um, with a song by uh, Abigail Spinner McBride uh, called Arms of the Mother. Uh, please enjoy and uh, come back next week. I'll be here. Evil, my mother, dear.